0: Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is is real and that it is active, um, that this is not a fairy tale that we are engaging in this morning, but a true story, a true story about our God, our King. Who has come for us? So help us to be reminded of that again through uh, this this uh, part of the story, um, through this man named Thomas, and how he reveals to us the real Jesus. And we pray in His name, Amen. So, because we're jumping into the, the, the Gospel of John right at the end, just let me give you a, a little bit of a little bit of context. Um, there are several threads that tie the Gospel of John together, and one of those threads is the theme of belief, and it's what stitches chapter 20 to the rest of John's Gospel. So the verb believe occurs more times in John's Gospel than in Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined. It also occurs more times than all of Paul's letters put together. So the word shows up 99 times in the entirety of the gospel and is found in every chapter except chapter 15, 18, and 21. You heard four of the instances just in the six verses that I just read for us today. And the theme of belief comes to fulfillment in this chapter. Because it's a chapter that not only gives us eyewitness account, eyewitness testimony to the resurrection, but also shows uh, the different responses to the resurrection. There's several of them there. Because laced throughout chapter 20 is an appeal to believe. John is calling his audience, his readers, to believe. And so we'll see how one man, Thomas, responds to this appeal and then, how he teaches us how to respond as well. So, we'll look at it in three ways. These are in your worship guide if you're taking notes. First, we'll look at it uh, through Thomas's doubt. Then, we'll look at it through Jesus' answer to Thomas. And then, we'll look at our own belief. So, Thomas's doubt, Jesus' answer, and our belief. So, first, Thomas's doubt. So Thomas was uh, one of Jesus' disciples. He was called the twin, obviously. He had a twin brother there with him. Uh, But some of you may be more familiar with Thomas with the word doubting in front of his name. He's often referred to as Doubting Thomas. And this has always come across, at least to me, as something negative. As if doubting is wrong in some way. And and, it makes Thomas defective as a follower of Jesus. One author I read this week said, we can all thank God that doubting Thomas didn't have his doubt crisis in a fundamentalist conservative church. They would have told him he didn't believe anymore, that he was doomed to destruction. Well, that's not the case here. Thomas, is being he is being a bit stubborn in his response, but it doesn't make him defective. What it does make him is like you and me. Because Thomas's doubt helps us understand that sometimes our doubts lead us closer to Jesus and not further away from him. Doubt is something through which we can come to understand the gospel more clearly, actually. In his book, A Reason for God, Dr. Tim Keller says this about doubts in the believer. He says, a faith without doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy and suffering or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. Now, this is not only a call to Christians, but to skeptics as well. Keller continues... He says, skeptics must learn to look for a type of faith hidden within their reasoning. All doubts, however skeptical and cynical they may seem, are really a set of alternate beliefs. The reason you doubt Christianity's belief A is because you hold unprovable belief B. Every doubt, therefore, is based on a leap of faith. You see, what Thomas is actually communicating through his doubt, is the certainty of the resurrection. Because Thomas knows that if the resurrection is true, that if Jesus has actually risen from the dead, then that changes everything. It doesn't just change Thomas's life personal, he personally. He's not just looking at this as an individual. What Thomas is saying is that it changes the course of history if the resurrection is true. So he's not believing anything other than seeing the resurrected Jesus with his own eyes. He will not settle for anything less than that. He's not even taking the risk of believing his own friends. These are men, and there are some women there as well, who he's walked with, essentially lived with, the past three years. And he's not even taking their word for it. He's thinking maybe they're delusional. Maybe they're so overcome with their grief that they're uh, just allowing their imagination to take over so that they can just feel good in their mourning right now. And I'm just not going to believe it. Thomas is not going to take a chance on that. To the point that he says these really strong words. If I cannot see and touch his wounds, I will never believe. If I never see Jesus again, I will never believe, Thomas says. He's ready to denounce everything. And rightly so. I think Thomas is right in saying this because if the resurrection isn't true, As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, our preaching is in vain and we are the most to be pitied as Christians. This here is a waste of time and we shouldn't even be doing this if the resurrection isn't true. Now understand that Thomas is not trying to be antagonistic here. He is not trying to be cynical towards the disciples. He's not trying to to poke at them and to kind of provoke them to some sort of argument or debate here. No, Thomas wants the resurrection to be true. Thomas, he, he wants Jesus to come back to life. He heard Jesus say that he would do that. He wants to see this happen. And in the reality of his death, he is having trouble with believing that he is. He wants this to be confirmed for him. It's similar to, uh, to, the, to the story of John the Baptist. If you remember the story of John the Baptist, John the Baptist who, is, who paves the way for Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and then when, when, when John the Baptist is faced with his impending violent death, he's about to have his head removed from his body, sends his disciples to Jesus to say to ask Jesus, are you the one to come? Are you the one that I have been preaching about? Are you the one that we have hoped for, or should we look for another? John the Baptist even doubted. But Jesus answers him, just as he answers Thomas. He does exactly what Thomas asked of him. And Jesus gives his answer here in verses 26 through 28. Now, the beauty of Jesus' answer is that it's not a rejection of Thomas. It's not a rejection of Thomas's request. He doesn't say, this is outlandish, you are asking way too much of me, Thomas. He doesn't even rebuke Thomas for his doubts. Jesus clearly answers exactly what is troubling him. He enters into Thomas's world. He comes to him. I like to think that he comes back in these verses, specifically for Thomas. You notice that in verse 27. He comes back after eight days, eight days after Jesus' resurrection, eight days after uh, Easter uh, Sunday, and he says to the disciples, Peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas and looks at Thomas and says these words, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now to understand just the, the, the gravity of Jesus' response to Thomas, you have to, we have to kind of compare it, and somebody reminded me of, of this on Friday, comparing it to how Jesus responds to Peter in Mark chapter 8. When Jesus has, has just asked his disciples, uh, there's who do people say that I am? And people are saying, Well, you're one of the prophets, you're Elijah, you're all you're all these different people, you're you're even John the Baptist come back to life, and they have all of these 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 answers to who they think Jesus is. And Jesus says to his disciples, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, answering for all of the disciples, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And Jesus affirms his answers and says, You are right. And as the Christ, Jesus goes on to say, I will suffer, I will die, and I will be raised again. And then Peter rebukes Jesus for these words. Peter at one point is saying, I believe, and then at the very next moment, Peter doesn't believe Jesus. And so, Jesus' words to Peter are Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. But Jesus doesn't do this with Thomas. He answers Thomas exactly how Thomas wanted. He wanted to see the wounds, he wanted to touch the wounds. And upon receiving this answer from Jesus, Thomas responds with a confession of Jesus' deity, which essentially is just an expression of worship. Thomas responds, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Commentators have said that this is the most loftiest, the most direct the highest confession of faith by any human being in all of the Gospels. Because what Thomas is saying right now, everything about Jesus is true. Everything he has said and done is true because Jesus has risen. And the purpose of John's writing his Gospel is so that his readers would come to the same conclusion as Thomas and confess Jesus as their Lord and God as well. Look at verse 31. John writes this, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Because there's not one person in this room, Christian or not, that doesn't believe in something. You either believe, as Thomas believed, that Jesus is your Lord and your God, or you believe in something else. No one here is simply not believing in anything. And what John is saying here to us, to his readers, I know that there are a million other things to believe, but none of them make the claims that Christianity makes. Seth said it earlier. There is no other religion in the world that has a God like we see in the Bible. None. You can compare them. A God that comes down to his creation, who humbles himself, A God that that not only comes down into His creation, but a God who takes on the very flesh of His creation, the brokenness of His creation. A God that takes on and defeats our most fierce enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And a God who looks at your doubts, who looks at your unbelief, who looks at your struggles, who looks at at your weakness and your continual fall into that same uh, besetting sin and says to you, the answer is my son. The answer is always my son. No matter where you're at in your walk with Christ. And it's in our final point, that is the Son who answers the question. Who answers the question concerning our own belief. Because I'm sure some of you are thinking, as I did, as I, as I read this passage this week and studied it, well, of course Thomas would believe. He saw Jesus with his own two eyes. He saw Jesus in the flesh. Jesus himself, with his very words, with his own human mouth, calls Thomas to believe. We don't have that sort of experience. Of course Thomas would believe. Who wouldn't believe? Well, actually, lots of people didn't believe. Lots of people who saw Jesus every day, who saw Jesus' own miracles. To, for some of us, we would say that's all we needed to see. All I need to see is Jesus feed 5,000-plus people. Man, I would have believed. I would have believed in Something. But there were many who did not. In the previous verses, what we have is is Thomas simply doing for us what the disciples did for him. So in the previous verses, in in verses 19 through 23, uh, we have the the disciples, they, they they get to see Jesus. They get to see the resurrected Christ. They're there in the room. Jesus comes walking through the, through the door that's locked, and he, he comes before them and shows them his hands and his feet and his side. Uh, Thomas isn't there. We don't know where Thomas is at that particular time, but Thomas isn't there. And so the disciples have seen and believed, and when Thomas comes back, the first thing they tell him is, uh, we've, seen, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas's response is, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I need to see him with my own eyes. I need to be convinced myself. And by God's grace, he is convinced. By God's grace, Jesus does come back and reveal himself to Thomas. And now Thomas... Like the disciples before him, seeing Jesus and understanding with his mind that Jesus has died and that Jesus has been resurrected and is standing before him and and is now uh, believing is saying to you what the disciples said to Thomas. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. Even in my doubts, even in my unbelief, Jesus came back and revealed himself to me. I have seen the Lord. How do you respond to his witness? And you may respond like Thomas initially did, and I would say that would make sense. And and that would be fair for you to do so. But that's why we have verse 29 here. It's for us. This verse is for no one but us. Look there with me. Jesus said to him, he first talks to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? And then to us, Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I am just making a guess to say that none of you have seen the risen Christ with your very own eyes. And if you have, come and talk to me afterwards because you have more problems than most people in the room. But Jesus announces to us, he announces to us a blessing on those who will come after Thomas. And he knows those who will come after Thomas and will believe like him without seeing Jesus face to face. Peter reiterates this from uh, uh, this blessing from Jesus in his first letter uh, because I think Peter knows just how hard it is for the church that hasn't seen the risen Christ face to face, just how hard it is for those of us who have not seen him. And so Peter reiterates this in his first letter in 1 Peter 1.8. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Jesus himself is saying to you, you will experience me the same way Thomas has. Thomas doesn't own this experience. Yet you will be even more blessed, Jesus says, if you believe, because you have not yet seen me. Now to help you with this, I would encourage you as we close to not go home today and forget this appeal to believe. Because I know it's Easter Sunday, and I know that we go and we gather with family and friends and and, do and and have hopefully celebratory uh, uh, dinners around a table together. But I would encourage you not to go home today and forget that this appeal to believe is for you and I. Because all of us need to believe rightly about the gospel. Even if you're skeptical. Even if you, you've, you've come in here this morning cynical. You need to believe rightly. Rightly about the gospel. And that takes thinking and effort and intentionality. You don't just kind of stumble into it. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis discusses the intentionality of needing to believe rightly. He says this, quote, One must train the habit of faith by making sure that some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. That is why daily prayers and religious reading and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. So I'll leave you with three ways in which you can feed on this. That you can do in the days between Christ's resurrection and His second coming. Because by the way we will see Jesus again face to face. Jesus does promise that. That He will come again. And that we will feast with Him as well. So three ways that you can do this before His second coming. One is to doubt your doubts. To doubt your doubts. Chase them down. Don't, don't let your doubts linger without answers. And I promise you, I am confident that as you do this, as you chase your doubts down, you will draw closer to Jesus in the process. Some of the f- my favorite text messages and emails that I get from people, from you guys mostly, are questions that are somewhat doubting. Are questions that are saying, what's going on here in the scriptures? Because it really, it forces me to go, I don't know, let me, let me chase this down, let me look, let me let me read. And, and together we, we draw closer to Christ when we do that. One commentator said this, concerning this particular passage, he says, if doubt is, If doubt leads to questions, questions lead to answers, and the answers are accepted, then doubt has done good work. It is when doubt becomes stubbornness, and stubbornness becomes pride, that doubt harms faith. Let your doubt deepen your faith as you continue to search for answers. End quote. So first, doubt your doubts. And the only way that you can doubt your doubts and chase those doubts down is to do this second thing, and that is prayer and the Bible. Prayer and the Bible. These remind you that even though you cannot see the risen Christ physically, it does not mean He is not with you and that you cannot interact with Him. Because just to remind you, uh, Jesus doesn't stay with the disciples. Jesus ascends into heaven as we said in the Apostles' Creed earlier. He ascends into heaven. He he goes away from the disciples. To prayer in the pages of the Bible, open this up to you. And through these means of grace, Jesus will be as real to you as he was to Thomas. Third, go to church. And I know some of you are thinking, well, of course you would say that. You're the pastor. This is how you get paid. You know. This is how you make your living, so we, of course you'd want us here, um, and which of course is right at some level. Um, but, but, at, but realistically, if you're looking for answers to your questions and doubts concerning Christianity, or even just, even maybe you're just in the general category of just spirituality, you're not even at Christianity yet, you are not going to find the answers to your questions by sitting at home on a Sunday. And even if you're a Christian, you're not off the hook. If you're a Christian and you're finding yourself stagnant in your walk with Christ, and we do walk through those lows at times, that is realistic. Avoiding the body of Christ will only make that worse for you. So think about it. You are submerged in the ways of this world most of your waking hours. You are being told how to think, how to act, even how to speak and see the world. The world is trying to put its lens on you at every moment of your day. So my appeal to you to go to church is not outlandish. My appeal to you is one hour a week, to come and hear the truth of the gospel. And I can say this with confidence, that if you do that, if you do these three things, that you will begin to see how different Christianity is from the world, how radically different it is from the world. And you will begin to see your restless heart settled by Jesus. And you will begin to see how the resurrection truly does change everything. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, again, we thank you for the reminder of the gospel. This morning on this Easter Sunday, Father. And really, this is, this, this is no different than what we hear every single week, that we are reminded daily from your word, God, as we march through it every week, uh, of, of the glorious good news that we have a risen king. That we have a king who, who uh, not only comes down to heaven from his throne, but uh, puts on our, our flesh, our broken flesh, uh, who, who, who is tempted in every way that we are tempted. And then, who, who dies uh, a death that we deserved, that takes on our guilt, takes on our shame, and is punished for it on the cross. And then, not only that, he rises from the dead and finishes the work in that way so that we can have this wonderful relationship with the God of the universe. That he, respo- that he restores the peace of the garden. Genesis. So God, I pray for those who who know Christ today and those who, who have yet to know Christ, that they would not walk away from this Sunday and just forget out this appeal that John makes to us to believe. That today would be the day of their salvation. That today would be the day of their renewed belief in the gospel. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, every Sunday we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and today is no different. And we're reminded that at this, at this table, um, that again, while we do serve a, a risen king, a risen savior, uh, that Jesus did have to die. That in order for him to rise from the dead, he actually had to be dead. And so the bread and the, the juice that we use reminds us of that in a simple way, that Christ was dead. That he was was killed for our transgressions. That he suffered uh, in a way that we should have suffered. And he takes all of that on for us. So as you take of the bread and take of, of, of the juice today, be reminded of Christ's sacrifice. That while he's risen, this is what had to happen on your behalf so that you could have life, so that you could celebrate today around this table. So if you're a believer in Christ, whether you're visiting with us, uh, you don't have to be a member of Christ the King to to take communion with us. Um, If you're a believer in Christ, we ask that you would come and receive the Lord's Supper together with us. If you are not yet a believer in Christ, we ask that you refrain from taking the Supper, but to do something different. We offer some prayers in the back of your worship guide, and you can begin to apply what uh, the application that I had for us at the end. of of the sermon today. To pursue God in prayer and in the pages of Scripture. And you can do that as well during this time. So the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and He broke it. and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, He took the cup after supper, saying, this is the new covenant poured out in my blood. For as often as you do it, Drink this, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Let me pray one more time and then you can take communion as you feel ready. Father, again we, we thank you that we can come to this table and be reminded of the glorious work that Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. Help us to eat with great eat and drink with great thanksgiving now as we receive the supper from you. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.